0: This is Risky Women Radio, a show to connect, celebrate and champion women in risk, regulation and compliance. Sharing insight and perspective from the most influential members of our global Risky Women Network on the latest developments we need to think about, the challenges we should all talk more about and the innovation we are most excited about in governance, risk and compliance. Bringing together the hundreds of senior women professionals already connected, ...with a new emerging group of leading women and men. I'm Kimberly Cole, your Chief Risky Woman. Welcome to Risky Women Radio. Today we've got an extra bonus edition. I was lucky enough recently to be invited to speak with Regina Larco... ...who runs the Hashtag Impact podcast. In her Season 3, she was looking for female changemakers based in Hong Kong... ...all who with different backgrounds and different missions... And I was joined with Liberty Asia's Archana Kotacha to talk about our mission and our actions around stopping slavery. Archana and Liberty Asia, along with Thomson Reuters, have been long-term partners now And we are thrilled of the impact that we are able to have by using data and technology, as well as the other areas that Liberty Asia works on. So I hope you enjoy this session, and I hope you also take the time to listen to some of the other hashtag impact podcasts. Thanks for joining.
1: You are listening to hashtag impact podcast season three. I am Regina Larco, founder, host, and producer of hashtag impact podcast. And in this season, we speak to the most inspiring female changemakers in town. Thank you for joining us when we track down social impact stories that will make you feel, think, and act. Find more information about this podcast at hashtag impact.com. Enjoy! Slavery is a 150 billion US dollar business generated from the exploitation of around 46 million slaves. And the number keeps going up. An estimated thousand new slaves enter the workforce every hour. Only 66,000 people out of these 46 million victims were rescued in 2017. And this actually makes the work of Liberty Asia an organization preventing human trafficking even more important. Today, I sit down with Archana Kotecha, head of the legal department of Liberty Asia, and Kimberly Cole, who is partnering up with Liberty Asia for many impactful event series, among others, the, help me Kimberly, so I get it right, the anti-slavery summit that has been happening now for three years and yeah welcome to these wonderful inspiring women who will talk our listeners through the impact of your work today welcome
0: thank you very
2: much thank you for having me
1: of course when I did my research the first thing I found was your TEDx talk can we talk about that actually I wanted to say that before we started recording but I was there when you were at the open mic Night, and I will show you that picture later. I have a picture proof that I found from that night where you were on stage, where I posted on my social media one of the amazing speakers, and you actually had my vote that night. Thank you. Yeah, so you made it on the TEDx stage. And what really touched me was when you said in your talk that slavery is an integral part of each of our lives, but we are willfully blind and blissfully unaware of this gruesome reality. But as I understand, it took you some time as well to really take action. So what happened in your career, in your work, that made you move from feeling touched by the issue to actually working on it? For very
2: long, described myself as an accidental human rights activist because I was a corporate lawyer and got very jaded after seven years of doing mergers and acquisitions. And following that, went to work for the United Nations Refugee Agency in London and there I was exposed to doing asylum work and you really saw the worst of humanity, how bad people could be to each other, but at the same time the beauty of the human spirit, how people were resilient, they fought through, they waited for years to be united with members of the family who had been lost in conflict, in movement of people, etc. And I guess when I left there I went to work for a charity that was doing a lot of legal aid work with asylum seekers in the UK. And we started to get through a lot of cases that came up, same very similar profile, young women of a certain age from Eastern Europe who were arriving in the UK, thinking that they were going to be working or studying or doing work study arrangements, and actually were sold into brothels and then, you know, lived a life of complete brutality until such time as they were rescued. I guess having done torture cases from Zimbabwe, having, you know, seen cases from Iraq and from really all over the place. What was really horrifying about the first account I read anyway of a trafficking case was the level of brutality, the deception, the abuse, the silence, the compliance, and the fact that for the first time I understood that actually this is how people turn others into commodities. You remove their ability to react, their ability to step away from the situation they're in, and they're before you know it, they're complying and you know, the trafficker gets richer as a result. And I guess I couldn't move on from that point. And after the first witness statement I read, that was for me, you know, a defining moment. And I felt that this was basically what I wanted to use my voice for. And this was a cause that I wanted to learn more about, bring more awareness to it. And I've never looked back from that point. So for me, you know, this is really, I know people say it's hidden in plain sight, etc. I don't think that's so much the case now. I think it's a case that we often don't want to see it where it is. It's not convenient for us to do so. And a lot of that we're seeing with the private sector now where you know, private sector is really being pushed to question the basic fundamental business models that have been so profitable over the years and that have been so acceptable. Why is it okay for a construction worker to work for two years on a construction site and to be paid at the end of the project? How does he support himself? What happens if six months into the job, he is experiencing abuse and he wants to walk away from it? He can't because he's already invested six months. He's not going to be paid for that to move on. There are so many things in the business model that are fundamentally wrong and that need to be corrected. But then there are people around the fringes of the business model, consumers, etc., who have such a big role to play. And I think although there is much more momentum and awareness than ever before, there is still so much more that we can do as people. In my TED talk that you referred to, I talked about an experience I had in India. What was particularly shameful for me was that I had encountered at that point in time somebody who had worked in a mica mine, who had been a victim, and I had quite felt horrified at the time and, you know, felt really bad about it. And then had quickly moved on and, you know, life continued as usual and everything else. And it wasn't until much later that I really felt, my goodness, you know, how could I have been so insensitive? And I try to address that through the work that I do all the time. But I'm very conscious myself that as a consumer, there are so many products that I use. You just can't get around it. It's everywhere. So it really is a question of enlisting support and, you know, really just finding synergies amongst different groups of stakeholders to really try to drive out, you know, the best that we can, this exploitative business model.
1: Kimberly, how was your journey to join Liberty Asia's mission, but not just with Liberty Asia? I know there are many other organizations that you support as well, like Mekong Club You are an active part in that conversation as well. What made you move into that field?
0: So I think it's a really good point is, you know, what is that tipping point that you decide that you're really going to take action? And I think Archner's raised a few interesting areas because I think the definition and what we mean by modern day slavery is often that people don't see that it is relevant or touching them. They think it's somewhere else. And I think there's still a lot of that. And we've done a lot to raise awareness. It's how do you take people from awareness to actually doing something? And so I guess there were several forums that I went to where – Archner spoke, yes, Matt Friedman from Mekong Club as well, but also our own Thompson Reuters Foundation, Monique Villa, who's our CEO of the foundation, ran a forum in our office. And there was actually a lady in the audience who stood up and spoke about a situation of forced labor and slavery trafficking issues in New Zealand. Now, I think when she focused on New Zealand, being an Australian, I suddenly went, wow this is everywhere i think for a lot of people there's a sensation that's happening somewhere else you know it might be happening in india it might be happening in nepal but it's certainly not happening where i live or where i know and i think once you take that leap and realize as Achna says it's everywhere as consumers we have a role to play because and it's hard for us always to understand exactly where slavery exists in those supply chains but i think as you say, there are some things that are in plain sight. I'm also on the board of Fair Employment Agency. And obviously, in Hong Kong, domestic workers are often in situations that are classed as forced labour and modern day slavery as well. So I think, you know, from that situation, we actually do have some pretty immediate things that we could do to make sure that we're not putting our own domestic workers in slave-like situations. And a lot of that is you know, at the moment we have a fairly broken recruitment system on the sort of platform that we created around the trust forum asia and now we've sort of rebranded that to make it clearer on the anti-slavery summit we're trying to bring together the community so certainly from the business perspective so corporates and the banks etc who can really make a difference who can really drive action at the corporate level as well as obviously individually for their employees we partner with liberty asia on that forum And we also, as a company, partner with Liberty Asia, and we can probably get into a bit more detail around that. But I think this is the broader context of how you can sort of try to drive prevention, how to drive using data, following the money, all of those things that I think, you know, we've got to think about where are our strengths and how do we play to those as a corporation and as individuals as well.
1: Let's hear more about what Liberty Asia is actually doing, because Arjana, you head the legal department. But as I understand, that's one of the many programs that you facilitate to drive the conversation here in Hong Kong, but also in the region and to empower NGOs and other players to have resources to learn more about human trafficking. Maybe talk us a bit through your day-to-day. How are the collaborations going? What are you most proud of having achieved in the last few years working with Liberty Asia?
2: So our work is all about disruption of slavery networks. And why did we decide on this? And it sounds a pretty simple thought, disruption of slavery networks. Fairly obvious, right? It only took us about four years to get that straight in our own minds, in our own narrative. And we come from the premise as an organization that the criminal justice approach to combat human trafficking has fallen short and will continue to fall short for a number of reasons, corruption, the fact that the whole criminal justice system relies so heavily on victims' testimony for cases to proceed, etc. And if you look at the number of prosecutions and convictions globally, they're below 17,000. And that's a drop in the ocean compared to the 40.3 million people who are currently living in modern day slavery. So we felt that there was a need to look at this in a slightly different way. But we also had the number, $150 billion, which actually when we started was $32 billion. And we felt that, well, this is actually an illicit business in addition to being a grave violation of human rights. So we took the business approach to it and very much said that, well, actually, we will look at where the money is going. The money is going into our banks. And what were the banks doing about it? Well, not very much a few years ago. And so that offered a clear opportunity for engagement with the private sector. Well, there needs to be awareness, education, and action on that front. And at the same time, there were other bits that emerged. One, there wasn't enough collaboration amongst stakeholders. They weren't speaking to each other. Everybody was in disparate pockets. And often when you're an under-resourced small NGO, you're on the front line, you have 300 fishermen walking to your office looking for support you don't particularly have time to think about where you can find other collaborators, etc. So there was a need to find somebody who was willing to be there behind the scenes and to pull these people together so that they could speak to each other and collaborate better. And so we created a platform called Freedom Collaborative, which is a free platform. It has over 2,000 users now within just about a year and a half. And it brings various stakeholders together. We have online webinars, discussions. It's a network where people can contact each other. And now we are seeing referrals from one country to another. For example, recently there was an organization in Israel that was able to make contact with an organization in Philippines using Freedom Collaborative. And they were then able to set up a safe migration program for Filipino domestic workers going to Israel. So that's what this is about really facilitating and actually the principles of collaboration and partnership really are fundamental to the work that we do. And the other missing piece was data. We had decision makers who were sitting in ivory towers in Hong Kong making decisions about accounts where most of the activity was happening in a different country miles away, fishing, palm oil plantations, etc. And there was a need to inform decision makers or put information within their hands so that they could better see it. And one of the first ever programs that we came up with, which, you know, really was pioneering in its time when it first came about, is the partnership we have with Thomson Reuters. And in particular, where we have a media monitoring program, which is a partnership with over 30 NGOs in the region. We collect media from them relating to individuals, organizations and assets Related to slavery. So these are people who've been accused of or who've been convicted of crimes linked to modern day slavery and human trafficking. And we gather the data, we screen it, and we submit it to WorldCheck, which is the database, third party database, owned by Thomson Reuters. That database is used by about 7,000 or even more financial institutions and close to 2,500 non financial institutions. What a smart way to get information about all these perpetrators into a database that is used by so many banks at one time. You know, it's an immediate red flag as it comes up, you know, in an adverse name search, which is often the first step that a bank or a financial institution will engage in when opening a bank account or doing their sort of ongoing monitoring, etc. So for us, it was not just finding where the niches were for our work and where we could really lend support but also who were going to be those strategic partners who would really help us to get our work that much further. And Thomson Reuters you know, has done that on so many fronts with us and on so many levels. And we know from people that there have been hits on those names and those accounts, etc. My work, what my day is like, my day is so unpredictable because I work with governments, I work with NGOs, I sometimes work with victims. A few days ago, we were dealing with a case of two Cambodian domestic workers who were stranded in Saudi Arabia and who were desperate to come home. So that took, you know, contacting the Freedom Collaborative Network, finding partners who were in the nearest country, which was Kuwait, and trying to help people to get, you know, all the ducks in a row to get these people home. They're now safely home and you know on another day i could be working on a legal case in particular looking at aspects of victim identification looking at various ways in which a case can be pushed forward a lot of it is about bringing innovative and creative thinking and lawyering to it and a big part of my work has been supported by a lot of the international law firms based in hong kong based you know in the us and everywhere else but i guess what i want to say is that i do a lot of work regionally and globally Hong Kong is very special to me because Hong Kong is home. It's where my two kids were born. And nothing offended me more when I first started doing my sort of awareness raising here, when people would stand up, you know, respectable people would stand up, professional people, professional women even, and say, oh, but this is a rich city. Nothing like this happens here. If you look at the reliance we have as a city on foreign, cheap foreign migrant labor, that is enough to tell you that where you have this kind of labor and where you have a legal framework that is quite weak, there are bound to be exploitative issues. And although the scene here is quite dominated by domestic workers because of the sort of high number of domestic workers, you have construction workers, you have migrant care workers who look after the elderly. You also have sex workers, a very large population in Hong Kong that are often very transient. And you also have refugees and asylum seekers who are also extremely vulnerable by virtue of the conditions that they live in. Mm -hmm. So for me, it's a case of, you know, there is so much that we can do as a community in Hong Kong. And for me, as a professional, it's as important as the work that I do in the region as well.
1: Kimberly, the number of victims, as I mentioned, are massive, but the numbers of victims helped are so, so small. How do you stay motivated to keep fighting the fight and is there any example from your anti-slavery summits in the last couple of years where you see there has been some improvement there has been something happening with the ambitions that you are putting in the work that you're putting in
0: yeah i think that's another challenge for people when you hear the numbers of 40 million you just think how can i personally make a difference and i think you know, to make that leap is a challenge for people. However, that's why, you know, once we had the discussions with Liberty Asia and saw that we could bring together from a data and technology perspective, you know, my view is you've got to think what are the things that you can bring to the table, whether that's as an individual or as a corporate, but Thomson Reuters Foundation had been shining a light on the challenges around human trafficking and slavery for many years. So, they have multiple streams of things that they do, but one of the key things is reporting on underreported stories. So, for years, we weren't seeing anything in the Press, you know, on a day-to-day basis around modern-day slavery. Whereas now, you know, I even think like South China Morning Post has really raised the awareness. You know, the first year when we ran Trust for Asia, two weeks in a row in the Sunday Post, they did a four-page spread in both editions of the magazine around who we were having speaking at the conference, and really that was a huge amount of publicity. Now the foundation is. You know done a fantastic job to get that awareness piece out there and I think now it is much more prevalent in your standard press. The foundation also has another area around trust law bringing together pro bono legal services with NGOs looking at particular projects and a lot of those have been slavery related and then the third area that I think has been incredibly impactful is bringing together the banks. So once again, you know, our core business really centers around our financial and risk business unit, the one that I'm in. Obviously, a lot of our customers are those biggest banks in the world. We also have a very big legal business. So the legal community that Archana is obviously, you know, very entrenched in also has a huge role to play. But we've brought together through the foundation the European Bankers' Alliance and the U.S. Bankers' Alliance. So the U.S. Bankers' Alliance was first and slowly now forming together the Asian Bankers' Alliance. Obviously, Asia being disparate countries like Europe is a little more challenging and we've got multiple jurisdictions that we're operating against or, you know, within. So I think it really is... When you think about the numbers, to me, it was how do you use data? How do you use technology to change this? Because waiting till you're trying to get them out of the system, let's try to stop them getting into the system. So that's been the biggest thing. The last event that we had last year, the Anti-Slavery Summit, the last sessions that we ran which were around technology we had i mean everyone was fantastic but just let me talk about these two women who sort of ended the day so one was leanne kemp from everledger and one was emily kennedy from marinus analytics so both of them stood up they did these you know great punchy 10-minute talks that you can see on youtube leanne is using blockchain to trace diamonds but obviously could be used for any commodity really and looking at that and how she can use blockchain to help in improving the sustainability but also the purity I guess of the supply chain around some of those types of commodities and we know that there's been blood diamonds and other issues in that supply chain. Emily is using artificial intelligence and machine learning and facial recognition and doing some amazing stuff of scanning websites for facial recognition on missing person lists and she's already helped US police agencies you know find six girls that have been trafficked. Now I just think those kind of things that we can look at How can we stop it? How can we also use data and technology? It obviously plays to our strengths as a company, having content at our core. And that's what excites me the most really is, you know, I think everyone has the opportunity within their own corporations to think about things that they could make a difference in this space.
1: Big impact when we look at what corporations can do, but also at the consumers. And I have to say, I have been looking through a website that you actually recommended, Arjana? It is called slaveryfootprint.org and it really opened my eyes. I recommend everyone to just try it out because they have yeah, a little questionnaire there where you can put in your behaviors or what things you own, in which kind of house you live, and they calculate how many slaves are working for you? First, I couldn't believe my eyes. It says like, how many slaves work for you? I would like my listeners also to think about that. Because you might think you're making conscious decisions. But the trick is in the supply chains, you cannot always know what are the good products? What are the bad products? The companies often don't know that's what you try to achieve can really raising awareness, helping banks figuring out where does that money go? Where does it come from? And yeah, so I did that questionnaire. And Supposedly 78 slaves work for me. And I don't know how that relates. No, was
2: we, 77. Yours was 77. Yeah.
1: Yours was 77. So I invite everyone to just try that out. And I would like to give our listeners some tips and recommendations as well, what we can do as consumers. Because after seeing these numbers, of course, I was digging deeper in some other websites that you also recommended. What websites, uh, their tools, out their resources that you as a consumer can use to find out which are the good and bad companies. But then I looked through the sites and then I found really like sometimes conflicting messages as well, like on one site, because people measure it in a certain way. Are they having an environmental impact? Are they looking at human rights and so on? So certain companies stood out as being very good on one website. And then I looked to the other one and it told me, no, those have a very bad human rights record. So Any suggestions for me as a consumer who felt in the first moment doing my research very empowered looking at these resources out there and then you know half an hour later I felt totally disappointed and confused all over again feeling what can I do to take action. Where should I go what should I do. Any suggestions.
2: It's a difficult question, and I'm sorry, I will answer it by posing another challenge. And the challenge is this, that the environmental movement is way ahead of the social movement. So when you look at reporting, the way companies report, you know, the way directors are held accountable for climate change, what happens in the context of modern-day slavery, supply chains, etc.? it's nowhere near as close. So while you may have very good quality information and data about the environment so that you can actually trace people's footprint and really make a decision over whether you want to invest in this company because they're environmentally conscious, etc., sustainability has by and large come to be very much associated with the environment. We, as part of the social movement, are really playing catch-up here. So the quality of information is already quite patchy. Now, when it comes to the conflicting messages that you see, a lot of it is down to companies putting information out in the public domain. So a lot of the benchmarks, et cetera, often rely on information that is in the public domain. Corporate human rights benchmark, for example. Very useful to look at the practices and, you know, very comprehensive methodology. But ultimately, they rely on information that is in the public domain. Most of that is put out by the company itself. So, if you have a pretty good PR machinery and you can spin a pretty good line, you can produce very good quality information to put out there. The question is, what happens deep in the supply chains, et cetera, doesn't always make it out. That's where investigative journalism has had an absolutely critical role to play. Just think about slavery at sea in Thailand and how those AP reports, the Reuters reporting, et cetera, helped critically. But that's not to answer your question about you know, what helps consumers. It's a difficult task because you won't go to one website where you'll find comprehensive information. It doesn't help that you know, there are certain products and goods that we use in Asia that you don't necessarily find in Europe. And if the benchmarking, et cetera, is coming out of Europe and the assessment of information, it's more likely to cover for consumers and shoppers in that part of the world as opposed to this part of the world. So, you know, my hope is on the millennials because the millennials do things very differently. My husband was trying to persuade me this morning that diamonds are not a good idea because millennials don't believe in diamonds. So the price of diamonds has dropped by 12% this morning. So I think, you know, the consumer will hold. I think there was a report done by, I think it was Walk Free Foundation, on consumer habits across places like India and China, the world's most populated countries, And the idea was very much that they were prepared to pay more so that somebody wasn't exploited in producing the goods that they were consuming. So I think we need to keep plugging at the data and at the information and to make it easier for consumer to make choices. But failing that, you could still do a good internet exercise and come to a fairly sensible solution over what to do.
0: I'll just add more, I guess, on the... I guess increasingly there's regulatory frameworks that are being put in place by different countries. So the UK Slavery Act, for example, and Australia is obviously looking at one as well. There's numerous other jurisdictions who've got different areas. But that is at least obliging companies to report in a certain way. Now, I agree with you, it's still often confusing. And I think then the other thing is, all of these things, there's a huge reputational risk to those companies if they get this wrong and if there's you know, negative stories that come out, especially around slavery. I think the millennials exactly, whether they, especially if they're employees of the companies, they don't like it. They do like that kind of environmental, social and governance agenda and they want it to be a positive experience. So I think all of those things kind of play to change, which is good. And the other thing that I would you know, add about the regulations are sort of at least driving it. But given the pressure from individuals with, you know, employees or consumers, I think we're going to sort of see more change. And what we're trying to do now is celebrate where people are doing the right thing. And I think the collaboration piece coming back to what I started with is if you can hold up the stars and who's doing it correctly and certainly if people start to say, well, I'd be willing to pay more for this, like they're saying on the environmental side, if you aren't damaging the environment, I'm still prepared to invest and get lower returns or pay more for your products, et cetera. That's what we've got to, I think, be driving for.
1: And let's look into the future. <laughs> 20 years from now... How has your work with Liberty Asia and the Anti-Slavery Summit, your ambitions that you put in, your heart and soul that goes into fighting for this cause, how has it impacted the world? Has it made a change? Are you optimistic? Is there going to be change? Is it all in the millennials? Where do you see this going 20 years from now when your kids are you know, grown up? How will the world look then, looking at this topic?
2: I think, you know, it's a tough question. And optimism is hard in a job where you watch people in the legal system for years on end and leave with nothing, even though they've been so aggrieved. And you watch the companies that wronged them continue to operate and continue to exist. You watch the same corrupt people get richer and richer. That's frustrating. And when you know that there are so many people in the world who are unable to speak up and who are unable to voice what is happening to them and break out of the situations that they're in, I hope that our work will give the platform to organizations to help people speak up and will create better infrastructure for people to access justice. Am I optimistic? I am more optimistic today than I ever was before because I think I've seen... A sort of a real turnaround in the types of stakeholders we're working with, in how committed people are to doing something about this issue, and to how committed a lot of people are to saying, well, actually, we don't know much about this, we need to learn and to get to a point where we can do something about this. With the banks, the financial institutions, etc., the conversation has moved quite far along. And ultimately, we are all people. And we have First and foremost, before our respective jobs and the respective platforms we have to do anything, our humanity. I have two children. And when I look at the trafficking cases that we've worked on and we've supported over the last few years, I look at the plight of the children in particular, whether they are sex trafficked, trafficked for begging, or trafficked to work in conditions of forced labor. We will never progress as a world as a community, as a society, if there are still children like this, if there are still women who are being uneducated and held back. There is a lot of talk about, you know, getting a seat at the table, breaking the glass ceiling, etc. We will never get a seat at the table if such a large population of women globally are being held back by lack of opportunity. The forced marriage figures that were put out this year were staggering. I really, I pray for a world and I really look and aspire to a world where my daughter won't be constantly watching over her shoulder where she will not be fighting to have you know an equal say in things and where there will be economic opportunities where people have been you know wronged and aggrieved and justice will be served and i guess you know the other thing i hope to see is people understand a bit more that, you know, in different parts of the world, justice means something different. In some places, justice is dispensed in a court of law, which is very confrontational and adversarial. This is not the way people may choose to do it in other parts of the world. So for us to be a lot more accepting of different ways of doing things, because solutions don't lie in the tried and tested ways of the global north. There are many other ways of looking at things. So I am hopeful. I hope that we will continue with our disruption work. We live in an age of disruption and, you know, we want to continue to build our platforms to help people speak up, to promote better data sharing and intelligence sharing so that people who are in decision-making positions are better empowered to do something about it. And my hope and my final sort of, you know, really it's a big part of my wish list is to actually to see a lot more victim advocacy we don't hear enough from victims there aren't enough platforms to elicit their views to engage them in our work and i personally want to work on that over the coming years so i'll be quicker i think i um
0: <laughs> i guess i'm fairly optimistic because even what i've seen in you know my last 4 years of kind of deeper involvement i take the small wins as you know big steps so 20 years still feels like a long time so i guess i'm hopeful that there's certainly a lot more i guess governmental support in terms of regulations and awareness and then from an individual perspective i don't think anyone you know really wants to see uh, slave labor so i'm sort of hopeful that you know everyone has done what they can and that the situation is radically different
1: i will not let you go without going through the quick fire round with me as well are you ready for this we're ready What's one advice you would give your younger self? I wish I'd spoken out against sexual harassment.
0: Take every opportunity that comes to you.
1: What should our listeners do now if they want to support your cause and also join the fight of preventing human trafficking?
2: I think do a bit more research, learn more about the topic. There is a lot of really high quality material out there. And then make your decision. Do you want to give your time? Do you want to donate your skills? Do you want to donate money? Do you want to be a more informed consumer? Choose something, something you can do. It takes one little step and then everything else can follow.
0: Yeah, I agree with that. I think everyone, as I said at the start, has a role to play. So, you know, I sort of said this, I think, at the Trust Forum, but if you're a journalist, you can write stories. If you're an individual, you can choose to, you know, what you purchase. You know, check your slavery footprint. If you're a corporation, You know, there's always things that you can do. Check your supply chains, make sure that you're compliant. If you're a bank, you know, make sure that you focus on stopping that flow of money. So, you know, I'm hopeful that everyone can find something that they can do.
1: And last but not least, our biggest question of all, what could everyone do right now after they listen to this recording to make the world a better place?
2: If only there was such a quick fix. Then we'd have absolutely no slavery today. I would say get informed because being informed puts you in a position where you can do, you know, you can take an informed next step. Nothing is quick in this area. Slavery will not end today or tomorrow. So take your time, be informed, and choose what to do next. Because the more engaged you are and the longer you stay with it, the more chance we have of seeing change.
0: For me it's an easy one. I would say listen to hashtag impact podcasts because I've listened to lots of them yes because I've listened to so many of them and I am always amazed at the incredible people that you have had on and the stuff that they're doing and I know some of them said what could you do to make a bigger place and it was smile and give a hug and I thought oh see that's great too but They really are doing some incredible things. So my one is listen to hashtag impact.
1: Oh, thank you so much. I'm like blushing here now. I'm like, oh gosh. That makes me so happy. And of course, I would, yes, encourage all the listeners to do just that and to check out the other episodes. We had a wonderful interview with Matt Friedman in episode 19, also talking about human trafficking. So if you're interested in that topic, you can head over there and of course last but not least i said this was the last question and it was the last official question but where can we send the listeners to now as well looking at liberty asia is there a social media site the website is wonderful where can people get in touch with you and support if they want to get involved in your work
2: so they can email us via the website which is www.libertyasia.org or we are on facebook I'm not on Facebook, but we are on Facebook and, of course, on LinkedIn and everywhere else. So, you know, please do come and find us, even if you have questions or if you want to support the organization, if you want to donate or, you know, if you want to be connected to other organizations, you can go on to Freedom Collaborative, which is www.freedomcollaborative.org, which is a really good place to get to know other organizations.
0: I would recommend obviously the Thompson Reuters Foundation website there is some amazing articles there on certainly on this issue but a numerous other areas as well that I think listeners would be very interested in you can find me on Twitter I'm at Kimberly Cole K I M B E R L E Y Cole and I'm on LinkedIn and happy to speak to anyone
1: Great. Thank you so much for today, for hosting in the wonderful Thomson Reuters office space here in Hong Kong. We're looking out at the skyline. We're looking at the banks, actually. (laughs) We're talking a lot about them today. The big HSBC tower is, is shining over from over there. So we're hopeful, optimistic, I guess, the overall consent. I can say that corporations, consumers will get involved, that things will change also thanks to your
2: amazing work let me leave you with a quote from william wilberforce who was one of the forefathers of the slavery abolitionist movement so he says you may choose to look the other way but you can never say again that you did not know so you've
1: been warned by this podcast there you go <laughs> thank you so much catch up with you soon and have a wonderful day bye, bye. thank you for joining us today Find more information about this episode and all the links on our website, hashtagimpact.com. Reach out to us at hello at hashtagimpact.com. And if this was the first time you listened, please make sure to also check out the other episodes of Hashtag Impact Podcast. We cover a wide variety of topics from environment, human rights, health, education, and so much more. The inspiration does not stop there. So come back for more and make sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app. We are on iTunes, Spotify, and loads of Android apps. Talk to you soon. Thank
0: you for listening to this exciting episode of Rescue Women Radio to connect, champion, and celebrate women in risk regulation and compliance. I'm Kimberly Cole, based in Hong Kong. For more information on the Risky Women Global Network, head to our website in the episode notes and please be a part of the ongoing conversation by subscribing to this podcast, connecting with us at Risky Women on Twitter or even reaching out to me directly by email.